These are the things that I learned during the 16th week of 2011, April 17th through April 23rd. April 17th, walking with a pulled muscle apparently makes it better. They don't repeat the phrase, walk it off for nothing. That being said, this advice doesn't apply to every injury. For this specific thing learned, surely it was one of the types of injuries that is compatible with the simple act of exercising the muscle within reason to stretch it out and unknot or debunch or whatever entanglement it had gotten itself into. Roughly a year prior to this date, I was biking to class and was hit head-on by a moped. Initially, I felt no pain and was able to continue onward to class that day. But just a few hours later, the delayed impact of the incident kicked in, and I was in quite a lot of pain from that point onward. The crash caused residual lower back pain for months and years to come. I would frequently encounter pain and fatigue in my lower back when sitting, walking, or lifting, so I'd be willing to bet money on the guess that I had re-aggravated that condition. It has been said that proper posture, a healthy walking regimen, and proper sleeping positions can assist with this. And I think that's where today's thing learned comes into play. As a reminder though, I am not a doctor, and one should consult a certified professional as opposed to taking medical advice from a podcast, as not every injury benefits from simply being walked off. In contrast, certain pulled muscles may require more rest and restricted movement in order to get better. The human body is just complicated like that. But for this specific injury that I had, a pulled muscle, walking it off was just what the doctor ordered. April 18th. French fries are named based on their shape, not place or origin. Let's start out by noting that french fries are not generally known as such in places overseas like the United Kingdom. Over there, they are more commonly known as chips, which is rather confusing to US-based folk who consider chips as something else. Supposedly, the origin of the term french fries dates back to the very early 1800s, where Thomas Jefferson had, quote, potatoes served in the French manner, which was a reference to their shape. Ponder this, when a potato is cut into thin, lengthwise strips before cooking, according to Webster, it is considered to have been Frenched. The English verb fry is ambiguous and can refer both to sauteing and deep fat frying. The English verb it derives from refers unambiguously to deep fat frying. Indeed, when Francophile, aka one who loves the French, Thomas Jefferson, had his staff over at the White House to serve his guests from large silver bowls of fried potatoes, prepared using a recipe he'd picked up in Paris, they became known as, riddle solved, French fries, in lowercase French. Of course, to complicate matters, and the entomology of the French fry is indeed a bit complex, the French fry may have actually been created in a French-speaking area of southern Belgium, which, however, was not to become part of France until 1830. This brief excerpt came from a larger paper from ChiliT.org, titled French Fried, From Monticello to the Moon, by Charles Ebeling. I never thought this could get even more confusing than it actually was. So we have someone who greatly enjoyed the company of the French, coining a new term for a food that generally has no specific French properties, based on a French sound-alike term which only differs in its capitalization. 
Then we add Belgium to the mix. TJ, my dude, this is why names matter, man. Well, anyways, for better or for worse, this is the somewhat maligned origin and confusing terminology of the French fry. I guess I can now sort of see the case for rallying around calling them freedom fries or something else, albeit for different reasons than what the term ended up being created for. Maybe we should just take a cue from the English and call them chips. Except we can't, because for us, that's already taken by another potato product. Great. April 19th. Some things about 64-bit addressing. Wow, what a topic. Also, what a generic and open-ended way to phrase such a topic. 64-bit addressing, huh? Researching that is an adventure. I'm not the biggest expert in the matter, but I think I understand the concepts enough to give a bit of a talk about it. So bits. You know them. I know them. They're the bleep bloops of computing. And a lot of the time, especially from the 80s onward, they like to be grouped into multiples of 8 and are based on exponents. The word addressing is key here, as that generally refers to memory mapping and address allocation. So let's zero in on that, I suppose. For example, let's take IBM's ZOS, developed in the year 2000 for mainframes, which was the successor of their MVS line of operating systems. I can guarantee neither you nor I have used them in any home context. When you search online for 64-bit addressing, this operating system shows up near the top of the results, taking you to several documentation pages for ZOS, which explains its journey to 64-bit memory addressing. Quoting from their documentation page, the original MVS, aka pre-ZOS architecture, defined storage addresses as 24 bits in length, which allowed an allocation to each user an address space of 16 megabytes. Later, the addressability of the architecture was extended to 31 bits, which increased the addressability of virtual storage and the size of the address space from 16 megabytes to 2 gigabytes. Subsequently, with the release of IBM eServer Z-Series mainframes in 2000, IBM further extended the addressability of the architecture to 64 bits. With 64-bit addressing, each address space is potentially 16 exabytes in size. An exabyte is slightly more than 1 billion gigabytes. More memory, more thing go fast, right? I also know 64-bit addressing was attempted even prior to this. The infamous Atari Jaguar game console in the early 1990s claimed that it was a 64-bit system, when in reality only very specific parts of its memory architecture did so in terms of data paths. In the desktop and laptop world, the jump to 64-bit was a bit more subtle and had more to do with, quote, newer or faster computers. I remember during this transitional period in the 2000s, in the late Windows XP and early Windows Vista era, specifically where you could get a computer that supported a 64-bit operating system, and might even have had a sticker that said it was, quote, Vista-ready. Such an OS could take advantage of 64-bit memory addressing, but sometimes you might not have ordered enough memory to take full advantage of the 64-bit hardware and software. If a computer's hardware is only spec'd out for 32-bit use, you can only really put a maximum of 3.5 to 4 gigabytes of RAM in it. With 64-bit hardware, however, you can go as high as 16 exabytes, or 2 to the 64th power of bytes of RAM. This entire topic is a mouthful to say the least. I only scratched the surface here, and I'm quite positive I didn't even adequately explain it. 
If you are into computer science, this is fascinating though, and I highly recommend further reading on the matter. I was learning this as part of my undergraduate IT studies, and while I likely didn't learn it in any specific class this semester, I think it was something I started looking up just out of sheer curiosity. And when you look up something out of sheer passion, often that's when you can learn the most, as that's when your brain is the most engaged. April 20th, 7D with the tripod. The Canon EOS 7D was a pretty cool toy in 2011. Not only was it one of the first incredibly high-fidelity still cameras I had the privilege of using, but it also was very capable of shooting HD video in high frame rates. Up to this point, I was used to pretty crappy cell phone cameras as well as respectable, albeit outdated, standard-definition Panasonic Mini-DV cameras that my college TV station utilized. Moving to the HD era with a modern DSLR was a major refreshing jump. We no longer had to wait to import tape, as the 7D shot footage to flash-based memory cards. For the Panasonics, we had to go through the ordeals of making sure tape was either new, not damaged, was already previously imported, and had enough capacity to store what we could shoot. Moving to the 7D's compact flash memory reduced a lot of time and headaches that tape brought us. So on this day, 420, I learned how to mount the 7D on a tripod. Luckily, most cameras have a pretty standardized tripod mount, and this was really not that big of a deal in retrospect. Certain cameras like the Panasonics needed a small metal bracket screwed onto the bottom of them before they could sit on the tripod. And if I could recall, the 7D had one of its own as well, just in a slightly smaller size. Once that's done, you're ready to shoot. Plenty of tripod mount accessories are available for this, and have many adjacent Canon EOS camera models even today, demonstrating the resiliency of the tripod mount standard. Clearly, this thing learned had legs and would maintain relevance for years to come. April 21st. MacBooks can apparently have fan speeds of about 8,000 RPM. I think the accuracy of this thing learned may depend on what model MacBook one is referring to. Just looking online seems to yield inconsistent results, with one discussion thread claiming their MacBook Pro fans actually top out at about the 6,000 RPM range. I found a YouTube video that attempts to stress test the fan of a MacBook Pro using the application SMC Fan Control, which allows for granular control of the fans in the laptop. At about the 30 minute mark of this video, the laptop only seems to make it to the 4000s in terms of RPM. SMC Fan Control is a great tool regardless, and if your MacBook has fans, bear in mind some don't now, it allows you to get some manual control. According to one Apple discussion thread, Mention of the supposed 8,000 RPM surfaces in a statement regarding the 2018 MacBook Air. Quote, The 2018 MacBook Airs have an incredibly poor cooling system since the heatsink has no heat pipe going to the fan for cooling, so this laptop will run much hotter than other Macs. Once the CPU temps go over a certain threshold, somewhere just above 100 degrees Celsius, the CPU will throttle itself if the fan is running at its maximum 8,000 RPM in order to lower temperatures so the CPU doesn't overheat. The CPU speed will automatically increase once the CPU core temperature cools a bit. If your system somehow makes it to 100 degrees Celsius, however, you are seriously running the risk of damaging your system, 
so it comes as no surprise that the fans would then put all power into attempting to save the system from basically melting. So there you have it, we have a couple of inconsistent results, probably compounded by just the passage of time. In 2011 we were only talking about a, maybe a certain handful of MacBooks, and in the decades since there's just been countless more models added to the mix. But I was able to find at least some evidence that the 8000 number can be achieved, albeit in much newer MacBooks. Perhaps it is also possible in older MacBooks, but I was unsuccessful in finding this. April 22nd, what a domestic partnership and a civil union is. In 2011, I had never heard these terms before, and I recall seeing them on Facebook. Simply put, a domestic partnership is defined as an unmarried couple living together. Regarding a civil union, it is similar to marriage in that they extend the same state benefits, civil rights, and legal protections otherwise available only to married couples, such as joint property and adoption. It is worth noting that in the United States, the legal definition of these terms may vary from state to state. For example, a domestic partnership in some states may require one of the two individuals to be at least 62 years of age. Both of these definitions come from findlaw.com. I remember there being this thing on Facebook where people would set joke relationship statuses between themselves. I knew these folks in real life and understood that they were good friends, yet knew for certain that they had no romantic involvement whatsoever, nor were they living together in any capacity. Late 2000s, early 2010s social media was a strange and different place. Nowadays the terms are much more understood and are handled with more reverence than before and the joke relationship statuses seem to be largely a thing of the past, at least in my purview. Overall, I think this is a good thing, as if it is taken more seriously and not in a joking context, the more accepted these ideals may become in society. It's sort of how cringy and awful a lot of movie tropes were in the 2000s, which in modern day would be considered incredibly offensive. Sometimes it takes many years for new ideas to take shape, but if they are good and become accepted, it benefits all of mankind. And finally, April 23rd. Blockbuster still took gift cards from 2002, even when going out of business. Blockbuster Video was once a chain of stores that were almost as ubiquitous to video as Netflix is today. I would say that they were almost just as common as GameStop in today's equivalent store counts. Back before we could reliably stream video over the internet, one had to go to a physical store to rent a physical tape or disc. The store would offer memberships, gift cards, late fees, all that. You could even rent video games from a lot of these stores. Blockbuster is the go-to brand for this genre of video rental retail, but others existed in the space as well, both big and small. Hollywood Video comes to mind, and even my local Hannaford had a small section devoted to video and game rentals. Apparently, Blockbuster Video was largely to thank, or blame, for the very concept of the modern gift card in 1995. While Neiman Marcus apparently were the first to truly invent them, Blockbuster was the first to actually run with the idea, as they were originally considered too obscure to understand. If you still have a Blockbuster gift card, there is likely no chance that it is still usable in any capacity. I found a comment noting that Blockbuster was purchased by Dish Network some seven years ago, 
and one of the contract stipulations was that the gift cards did not have to be honored by the new owner. This gives me pause to wonder where I got the idea that the gift cards were still being accepted by Blockbuster. Unfortunately, I didn't write down who told me this or where I read it, but it must have been wrong after all was said and done. According to a period-appropriate article, Blockbuster announced on April 7th, 2011 that the cards were going to become about as valuable as dirt by the end of the same day due to their bankruptcy filing. If the gift cards were indeed accepted, they might have been done so in a hush-hush, under-the-table fashion at select stores. So there we have it, the interesting history of the gift card of all things, and a clarification on Blockbuster's final days. Nowadays, you can still see a Blockbuster within the 2019 Blockbuster film, Captain Marvel, in a rather interesting nod to avoid spoilers. And that about wraps up the 16th week of 2011 in terms of the things that I learned. Finally, we're getting a little bit further away from strictly technology weeks, and we're talking about a couple of new things, such as medical topics and the origin of french fries, some stuff about gift cards, but we also swing hard into memory addressing as well. So the tech topics aren't completely gone, they're just a little bit muted this week. I got an email from the university's media lab from someone stating that he made a tutorial video for someone using some Mac software called HD. I had completely forgotten about this until reading this email over again, and it kind of comes to mind how difficult it was to record your screen on certain computers back in the day. I don't know why it was so difficult, and the functionality is often built into operating systems of today. Back then, it was really difficult to find any free software that could do it without watermarking the display or making the quality really terrible. It's a bit of a testament to how far operating systems have come in terms of small convenience features like this. In collaboration with the Information Security Department at a local airport, our High Technology Crime Investigation Association chapter had arranged an upcoming date for us to come down and tour their facilities. And that ended up being a really fun trip because that sort of showed us a real-life scenario of an information security monitoring situation. On April 22nd, Riot Games sent out a little letter of compensation apologizing for recent server instability for League of Legends. This was a common issue during the early days of the game, where there were frequent login issues or unbearable server load due to the popularity of the game and Riot Games was just unable to keep up. Unfortunately, this would be a problem all throughout this upcoming summer of 2011, and this outage was one of the more severe incidents. They gifted players on the North American and European platforms 350 Riot points, which could be used on the in-game store to buy characters or skins. Woohoo for free money, I guess. My university's director of IT security had sent out a brief blurb on the dangers of email phishing and that apparently phishing attacks had reached critical levels. Phishing awareness is something that is always ongoing and any organization has to educate the user base on when to recognize a suspicious looking email and to be really careful not to click just any link that is found inside the body of a message. Anecdotally, I know a lot of computer viruses were primarily transmitted via phishing email scams. 
Sometimes, unfortunately, it can just be a matter of exploiting that moment of vulnerability where someone just idly clicks a link inside an email thinking it's okay, and sometimes that's all that is needed. So that about wraps it up for this week. Things Learned is brought to you by me and a little bit of royalty-free music. At the current rate, this is a weekly show where I talk about things learned, seven days per show, and so far it's been going pretty well, and I hope it continues to go well. But more importantly, do you think it's going well? Give this podcast a rating if you feel you want to leave any feedback. It is greatly appreciated. If you are a new listener, I thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you are a returning listener, as always, I thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and you feel someone else might, please recommend it to them if you wouldn't mind. If you are interested in any of the content that I discussed today, please feel free to check out the show notes for any links and additional research that I will provide, as well as any music credits. I hope you are having a good week, and I hope you will stick around for the next episode. Again, thank you very much for listening to Things Learned, and I will talk to you next time.